I'm Silas Farley, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. In this episode, we turn our attention to the ballet Chacon. This work was choreographed by George Balanchine and is set to music by Christoph Willibald Gluck. It scores the ballet music from Gluck's opera Orpheus and Eurydice. The opera is based on the ancient Greek myth of Orpheus, a hero with extraordinary musical ability who journeys to the underworld to retrieve his wife Eurydice. This story fascinated Balanchine throughout his life as a choreographer. He made his first iteration of the work in 1936 for a production of the Gluck Opera at the Metropolitan Opera, when Balanchine and Lincoln Kirstein's company, the American Ballet, served as the Met's resident ballet ensemble. For this production, the singers performed from the pit while the dancers embodied the story on stage. This experimental approach, with designs by Pavel Chelichev, was unsuccessful and discontinued after only two performances. Balanchine revisited the Orpheus myth again in 1948, when he collaborated with Igor Stravinsky and designer Isamu Noguchi to create the ballet Orpheus for Balanchine and Kirstein's company Ballet Society. This work was so successful that it prompted Morton Baum, then chairman of City Center of Music and Drama, to invite Balanchine and Kirstein's troupe to become City Center's resident ballet company and change its name to New York City Ballet. Balanchine returned to Gluck's opera of Orpheus and Eurydice in 1963, when he directed and choreographed a new production of the work at the Hamburg State Opera. In 1976, Balanchine invited Brigitte Tom, the repetitor from Hamburg, to stage his Orpheus and Eurydice ballet choreography on New York City Ballet. This choreography is what we now know as the Ballet Chacon. Chacon is divided into two sections. In the first section, a group of women glide across the stage in flowing skirts and introduce an ethereal duet for the principal couple. This is set to Gluck's Dance of the Blessed Spirits. This opening was the only new material that Balanchine choreographed for the 1976 Chacon at City Ballet. The second section of Chacon is the series of divertissements Balanchine had made in Hamburg, several dances for different groupings of corps de ballet and soloists, then a substantial pas de deux with solos passed back and forth between the principal couple, and then a final dance, a Chacon, for the principals and corps de ballet. Chacon is a ballet of contrasts, the intimacy and poetry of its first section set against the grandeur and formality of its second section. In the 1976 Chacon, the principal dancers were Peter Martins, who went on to serve as City Ballet's ballet master-in-chief, and Suzanne Farrell, Balanchine's muse, who inspired such masterpieces as Diamonds, Mozartiana, and Vienna Waltzes. Miss Farrell's three-decade career stands out as one of the most significant in the history of City Ballet, and her contribution to the art form is immense. At her 1989 retirement performance, Lincoln Kirstein himself presented her with flowers. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Miss Farrell for a discussion about Chacon, her close collaboration with Balanchine, and her life's work of sharing her vast experience with the next generation of dancers. In this conversation, we were joined by another iconic city ballet ballerina, Maria Kurowski, who has served as an anchor and light in the company's life for over 25 years. In addition to inspiring works by Mauro Bigonzetti, Christopher Wielden, and many others, Maria also inherited many of Miss Farrell's signature roles, dancing them with beauty and authority. My time with these two women was incredible. 
They shared so generously about their paths in ballet, about the importance of living in the moment, about their partners, dancers like Jacques D'Amboise and Tyler Engel, and they spoke ballerina to ballerina as Maria prepares for her own retirement performance. Let's listen in. Miss Suzanne Farrell, Maria Karowski, welcome to the Hear the Dance podcast. It is such a delight to get to visit with the two of you. It's really awesome to be able to sit down with the two of you because you represent so many years and generations of the company's life and development and the, the masterworks that have been made on the two of you and that you have, you know, Maria roles that you've inherited from Miss Farrell and Miss Farrell, the incredible relationship that you had with Balanchine and with Lincoln and with Jerry and all of our kind of artistic founding fathers and Stravinsky. And so it's really awesome in the truest sense to be able to visit with you all. And I wanted to start with just one little quote from Robert Majorano. And he said this about you, Miss Farrell, talking about your relationship with Balanchine. Their collaboration, their communion has been a glory of the New York City Ballet for 20 years. And I would just love to turn it to you, Miss Farrell, and just begin with that idea and that reality of your kind of communion and collaboration with Balanchine and what that means to you. That's hard to describe but I think you have to remember that I sort of knew him through books and uh, articles before I ever met him so in a way we already had a history before I even had a history and it's unbelievable that a little girl from Cincinnati her orbit would intersect with Mr. Balanchine you know and that would happened because there were lots of wonderful dancers in the company. But when it's actually happening in your life, you're not aware of any history that's being made or any impression you're giving or, you know, what your colleagues think or care or, you know, it's, it's, it's very kind of lonely. And Mr. Balanchine didn't speak much at all, ever. He was very different from other choreographers that would uh, give you history about the music and the background and what they wanted to achieve and what they, you know, ballet was going to be about. Uh, he said very little and um, most of it came out in the music. And I always wondered what he ever saw in me because I didn't excel in anything. There was always someone who could turn better, or jump higher, or legs were higher or something. But I think now I was different in my willingness to listen to what he said and to try what he asked for when he started teaching class, mostly when we moved to state theater. We had to learn how to move differently when we went to state theater. You know, our city center was a small stage ballets were choreographed for a small stage so suddenly we had all this space to have to cover and he couldn't add any new choreography and add any new music so you had to learn to cover space and breathe differently and move differently so it was it could be exciting it could be daunting it could be frightening it could be all of those things it never occurred to me that anyone would not want to do what he asked for but of course I was young, I had no reputation, 
I had nothing to lose, which is a real plus. You know, you're not having any, any restrictions other than that you couldn't do the step that day. What I learned from him, I learned in the classroom and anyone else could have learned it had they been there. Not everyone was there. It was a very daunting time, but exciting. And that's where he learned about you. He couldn't learn how you danced or even what was inside you or what your impulse would be to move or what made you want to dance in the first place. He couldn't learn that about you if you were not in the classroom. And so that's where the laboratory was, not in performing a ballet and then he passes judgment or anything like that. I think that's greatly different from now, particularly when we have all the videos and things. The video is only one version. And when you don't have a visual reference, you dream differently. You envision yourself differently because there's nothing etched in stone. So I would see different ballerinas that had different qualities. You know, Pat Wilde was very different from Melissa Hayden, who was different from Diana Adams, who was different from Violette. You know, they were all different. And I'd see different things in each of them that I said, mm, I like that. I wonder if I can use that. I could never do it like they did, but it was something that I thought was interesting. And maybe it would work to an extent for me, but because they were all so different, that gives you many different ways of seeing what might, it's a recipe for what you might cook up. Could you describe some of the different qualities that you remember from those other ballerinas that you amalgamated in your own approach? Well, Patricia Wilde had incredible entrechassis and beats and, you know, footwork that was very impressive to me. And I never did much of that in the school where I came from. You know, I never really knew much about entrechassis. They weren't so important. And then Melissa was very feisty and, you know, a different kind of temperament. And then Diana was very long which I gravitated to because I had always been told I'd be too tall. I'm sure Maria had the same kind of problem, but uh, that made me happy that I could have a career as a tall dancer. And then, you know, Violette was very French, you know, they were all, which when people say what makes a Balanchine dancer, you cannot label anyone because each person was a Balanchine style that he enhanced. They already had their own persona and personage, but he enhanced it and used that. And what he did is he discovered those things in us. And then we in turn discovered who we were. You were just touching on the kind of assets and liabilities of being a very tall dancer. And I'd love to hear Maria's thoughts about that too. And Maria, if you could also, I don't know, maybe share a little bit about one of the similarities between your and Miss Farrell's stories of like coming from the Midwest. You're from Michigan, Miss Farrell from Cincinnati, and you come into the world of, of Balanchine, even though you came after his life. And then that experience as a tall dancer too. Well, first of all, it's an honor to be in the presence of you again, Suzanne. Um, as always, it's you know wonderful to hear everything you have to say. It's funny because everyone has always said, you know, 
being tall is, is great, you know, it's, but it's like a blessing and a curse. There's a lot of things that are challenging about being tall. I've struggled with trying to move fast my entire career, trying to figure out how to make my body move fast or to keep up with the pace of the balancing choreography. And like you, I came from a small town, Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we, you know, it was very different training and we did a lot of things and we did a lot of the classical repertory. Um, but there was a lot of difference to the style. So when I moved to New York, it was like, literally I was playing catch up, you know, studying at the school and trying to figure out, you know, how to move that fast and, and make my body do what they were asking of me. Growing up in a small town, you know, New York City Ballet didn't tour through my area. So I, this is going to sound horrible, but I hadn't heard of New York City Ballet because only American Ballet Theater toured. So I knew who Baryshnikov was, Cynthia Harvey, Cynthia Gregory. That was the generation that was dancing at the time. And it wasn't until I went to the School of American Ballet where I really, you know, got absorbed in everything and found out who everybody was. And I was like, how did I not know this all these years? My mom knew. I remember her. I mean, we had dance magazines that were delivered to the house. So we saw, you know, I remember different people on the covers. And I know she gave me your book. And that was incredible to like kind of get that little taste of, you know, what what it was like in the Balanchine world. It was very eye-opening. And when I first discovered the company, I was just like, oh my gosh, wow. You know, I, I just can't believe I, I felt very naive and I had a lot of catching up to do. I spent a lot of time at the library studying videos and, you know, trying to just absorb as much as I could about the company and about all of these great legends that had come before and trying to, you know, keep up that legacy. Well, and, and for both of you as these I, I think of you both as iconic ballerinas in the history of New York City Ballet. Oh. And you both really rose to prominence in the company very young. And I would just, I would just be very interested to hear both from you, Ms. Farrell, and from Maria, what that experience was. I mean, obviously this career, you go into it wanting to dance these ballerina roles. You know, when I was at the school and seeing all these ballets, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I want to dance Mozartian, I want to dance Chicot, and I want to dance, you know, you, you're aiming for this goal and working so hard. And I felt like I kind of had blinders on. And, um, and I remember it feeling, um, it was very fast. You know, I got into the company in 1994 and um, got promoted in 97 and then 99 and was given a lot of roles very quickly. And it was overwhelming. And I kind of felt like I was out of my depth. I didn't really know if it's, you know, I'm like, how is this happening? Am I really right for these things? Am I good enough? Like, why are they choosing me? And I remember just feeling, I just worked really, really hard. Um, and, but it was, it was pretty lonely um, because I was investing so much into this time and, and wanting to prove myself, prove to myself that I could do these things and to everyone else. Um, and that I belonged in these roles. And I think it was um, very challenging, but also so exciting and exhilarating at the same time to be doing these roles for the first time on stage and kind of growing into them. I feel like I was a fish out of water the whole time. I don't even know what I looked like. I probably was a big mess, but it was, <laughs> it was really um, exciting. And, you know, I was happy that I've spent this much time in the company to be able to revisit these roles throughout so that I could grow into them and understand them more each time I perform them. A dancer's career has to start when you're young. You know, it's, it's, that's the nature of it. Of course, when you're young, you think you'll always be young. 
<laughs> and vital and healthy and things like that. But in those days, so much was happening. You know, we had the good fortune of the state theater. You know, Mr. B came into some money. We had the Ford Foundation. It was a, a renaissance for, for dance, particularly for the arts, but for dance. And things were happening. It was busy. We had long seasons. We rehearsed all day and you felt stronger, you know, and, and happy. At least I did. I'm sure everyone didn't, you know. Uh, and, and I also felt inadequate, you know. I, I, when I was at SAB, I thought I lived in fear that I would lose my scholarship. Then you get in the company, you live in fear of being let go or something. You have all these insecurities, but I just danced. You just dance. You try not to think about all those things. And uh, and blinders are good. Diana Adams said to me, "You just have to put on blinders because you have to go your path and not be sidetracked and not let other people, other things, even your own self, get you distracted." So I often use that blinder. <laughs> analogy on young people that you have to you have to stay focused you don't have to be narrow-minded or insular or tunnel vision but you have to stay on your your path but we had lots of ballets to learn lots of things to do and uh, the variety of ballets was very exciting and educating and then Mr. B would come in and say, I have an idea for a ballet and we'd start working on something. That's about all the information you get. I have an idea for a ballet, maybe Tchaikovsky, maybe Stravinsky. So, you know, that was what it was. And then you'd see your name on the bulletin board, such and such a time to go to rehearsal and you'd go there. And it was usually Gordon Belsner, who was the wonderful pianist at the time and Mr. B and maybe Jacques or somebody and myself. And it was, it was nothing and it was everything. And people ask, how, how does he make a choreograph? How do you choreograph? Well, I don't really believe you can teach how you choreograph. Uh, you can put steps together. That doesn't make you a choreographer. But I felt like a, going into the studio and a piece of dust. And then after a couple hours, he would whip up all this dust and it would become a hint of a ballet. And the music was very instrumental. You could have an idea of where he was going by the music and uh, what you might look like or feel like because of the music. But there was very little story and very little anything other than energy and excitement and service. <laughs> One of my favorite things I've heard you say, Ms. Farrell, was uh, from the documentary about your life where you're teaching some students at the Kennedy Center and you said to them, you said, we're servants of the dance, but we're majestic servants. Could you, could you unpack that quote a little bit? We were working on port-a-bras, you know, full port-a-bras, and they kept touching the floor and mopping the floor, you know, the hand one way and the other, and I said, yes, because I didn't want them to misinterpret the fact that we were servants. We are not servants. We are in service to the dance and we are majestic servants. So I didn't want them, you know, you, 
unless the choreographer asks for it nowadays, you don't touch the floor. We are airy people, you know, of the air. We are not earthy in that sense. So uh, I just wanted to make sure they didn't misinterpret what I was saying. I love that. I love that. Well, and you, and you titled your autobiography, Holding On to the Air. What did you mean by that? It was the last thing uh, that happened with the book. I didn't know what I wanted to call it. I didn't want to use the word ballet because I thought it was more of a story and I didn't want it to be only on a ballet shelf. Uh, because what I learned from Mr. B is more than ballet. <laughs> so that came from the very first ballet meditation, my entrance in meditation, where I come from the back upstage right wing, like diamonds, Maria. All my ballets are on that diagonal. I call it the diagonal of life. <laughs> and I'm supposed to enter seen but unseen as a apparition and step on the right foot and then the left foot onto point and then the right foot onto point and hold it in a wide fourth in my arms part, whatever my imagination is. And in rehearsal, he had me do this at the old SAB. I, I'm, I'm even now, I'm nervous. But um, I, I kept wobbling. I couldn't hold it, you know. And he said, try it again. I try it again. I just couldn't do this, my entrance. And uh, he said, well, we'll just come on in. We'll just pretend you're in. Now go stand next to shop. And that, of course, made me feel even more inadequate. But at least we were proceeding with the the ballet. So he, he, he had said, it's like you're holding on to the air. And that's, I eventually did do that. And I'm happy to say that I, I've never missed that in performance. <laughs> but you know, air has weight. And it's true. We know that because we have humidity. We have, you know, it's the humidity's up, it's down, we're hit, we feel heavy, you know, air has power. And we have to push it away or embrace it or hold on to it and conquer it. And an analogy, an image is a lot more powerful than just telling somebody, no, get higher up on point. Put your right heel forward. You're not turned out enough. I mean, that just makes one feel inadequate. But a visual image analogy, a visual analogy is enlightening and informative and empowering you know, and positive. I think that idea of holding on to the air, as you've just described, it connects so beautifully with one of the ballets I hope we'll be able to talk about a little bit in this conversation, which is Chacon, which begins with a, a pas de deux that seems like the embodiment of holding on to the air. Could you just share with us a little bit about how Chacon came about, Ms. Farrell? It's interesting, I think, that when he was first choreographing meditation is the same time period, 1963, that he was in Hamburg working on the opera Orpheus for the Hamburg Opera Company. And we rarely said anything in those days. You know, the conversation between Mr. Balanchine and myself would be in the morning in the elevator. Good morning. Hi, how's your cat? That was about the extent of our conversation. So, you know, it was in retrospect, very interesting that he was working on something like that, Orpheus, which was another version of his Orpheus 
the Stravinsky version. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting to see how many times Mr. B would go back to a ballet that he he personally felt he hadn't quite gotten right, even if the ballet was successful. Sometimes it would be as much as a, adding a, a repeat in the music, which is the case in Serenade, or um, a couple versions of Mozartiana. He, he felt because he is in service to the dance, he needed to correct those things throughout his life. It was just a personal kind of want that he had on his part, but I think a very noble <laughs> gesture. Then it came time for Chacon, and I think he thought about it. He was busy and getting long seasons and very active and a couple health issues. So he thought, oh, well, maybe I'll revisit this. You know, I don't know really how it originally came about, but he said, oh, I did this ballet for the Hamburg, this woman that's going to come and stage it. I said, oh, that's wonderful, you know, and she did. And uh, I could tell it was Balanchine, but it wasn't the same kind of Balanchine that you would get if it came from nothing, you know, if it was done for you in the studio. Everybody has favorite positions that they fall into when they can't think of anything else. <laughs> you go to your arabesque or you go to, you know, something uh, if it's not etched in stone. So, you know, there were some FSA attitude positions that I just didn't think were my, I did very well. And uh, this ballet was full of them. And I sort of wrinkled my nose and then, you know, cause he, he was very accommodating and I thought maybe he'd change it, but he never changed it. And I was, I realized because if he changed my attitude, everybody behind would have to change also. And it would just would have been a domino effect in the finale, you know? So it was interesting uh, and a smart lesson, you know, and kind of a silly request, but good for me not to get my own way. <laughs> but the ballet actually started with the introduction of everyone. The, the pas de deux that he made for Peter and I was not in the original version. He knew of that beautiful music and maybe he couldn't use it in the opera itself, which he might've wanted to, but couldn't when the opera was going on. So he decided to put that in and just choreographed it very quickly in between a matinee and evening one Saturday. changed everything because it was like the harbinger of what the rest of the ballet would, would become. It justified the rest of the ballet. But perhaps it was his, and I never want to speak for Mr. B because only he can speak for himself. But maybe that was kind of the happy version of Orpheus where they do get reunited <laughs> and uh, she's not lost. So, and he uh, doesn't die. So I think it was kind of uh, uh, a growth period, but frequently 
interviewers would ask Mr. B, um, why a Tchaikovsky festival? Why a Stravinsky festival? Why a Ravel festival? And he would say, why not? And it's true, you know, why all these questions? He is going to do a festival featuring the works of certain composers because they inspire him. They're very good for movement. And it doesn't really always have to have a, a reason, psychological reason why he did anything. I don't put that much emphasis on the story of the first Parada of Chacon. All of me comes out of the music. It's the music that really compels me how I want to move. So there's not really words or a story. It's all about the music. Maria, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that first pot of the in particular in Chacon. Oh, it's, I mean, what a way to start a ballet. It's almost like a meditation before you start the rest of the ballet. Like I just, you know, cause your nerves can get the best of you, especially you're debuting in something. And I always found um, the second half of Chacon a little bit challenging. There were some moments that were challenging for me. So to start with this pot of the and just, you know, it was almost, it was like a meditation. And in the music, like you said, it's, it guides you the entire time. And there, you know, I never thought of it as a story, but I always, because the first time I saw it was the video of you and Peter in the clouds. So I always imagine that same kind of atmosphere because it feels like that, you know, you feel like you're surrounded by clouds in this wonderful mood. And to me, it's like one of my favorite things to dance in the company. Um, and what's so crazy is you go off stage, you know, like you're going off to heaven and then you're like in the wings, like doing your hair really quick, trying to get your hair up for the next part. And it's so it's um, it's like you have to hold on to that as long as you can. And then you run off and then you know, <laughs> putting your hair up really quick to get ready for the next part, which is, you know, a little bit of a challenge. I had I always had a hard time putting my hair up that fast. So I ended up having to do a little bun because it's the only thing I could do to make it fast. And I always felt like I wasn't doing the right hair, but it was the only way I could get my hair up fast was to do a low bun. Um, I don't know, was that like not allowed, Suzanne? Cause I know you always had a high bun. <laughs> well, to backtrack, originally there were no clouds in Chacon. Right. The clouds did not appear until we did the film uh, because Mr. B didn't want to a stage with the introduction of the music starting and there's nothing happening, no, nothing. So clouds appeared. Then he put the nine girls in a different place, you know, changed that. 
I didn't come in. I, before the filming, I came from the downstage wing, was originally right stage, downstage, and then just made a little semicircle. Then he had to change it for the TV. So he kept that. I guess he decided he liked it, you know, it was a better pattern or something. And uh, he kept that. So frequently things would get changed for a film and sometimes they would revert back to the original. And then sometimes they would be altered altogether. But clouds help. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it puts you in a more specific place and it, 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 it changes you when you have the clouds. He was making ballet sometimes so quickly you know, there wasn't a lot of rehearsal. It wasn't done in a rehearsal period all the time. It was done when we were still performing. So if you made a mistake or you weren't happy with something, you just had to leave it and then fix it later or you get used to it and you say, oh, it's all right. I'll just do a whole nother ballet, you know. But he was very good about that. He didn't feel tied to any specific thing. Funny about timing you think after that you you go off and I would run to my dressing room that was on that side and I'd rip off put your hair up and get in another costume and it seems like you have the pas de trois you have that pas de deux you have the pas de... it seems like a decent amount of time but it goes by so quickly you know and I'd have to get over to the other side of the stage and that but on the other hand it gave you something to do without just being nervous and waiting for the pas de deux to come were occupied putting your hair up. I had had experience in Don Q with a lot of fast costume changes and hair things, you know, so uh, even a change of toe shoes. So I was kind of used to that. It, it, it's nice to be someone else. And it, it like I said, it, it justifies the rest of the ballet. It brings back um, a uh, resolution to why the first part happened and it enlightens everyone about the other people and about a private and a public service. You know, the elbow hook promenade, you know, that's so beautiful. I mean, that's an interesting image. And uh, if he didn't choreograph that, we never would have that because it, it only can be at home in Chacon. <laughs> Suzanne, I remember when you were here for Diamonds and Tyler took you aside and asked you about that moment in Chacon, that that lean out, because it is it's a very precarious moment and it seems like there's a secret to it. But we, you know, we always manage to do it, but it's always like, you know, you feel like you're. I actually watched you the other day because I was like, I wonder if there's something she did. And I noticed you kind of leaned out a little bit before you went under. And I was like, I wonder if that's what the secret was, <laughs> because we just try to get under under the arm. And it always, you know, you get stuck in the sleeve and there's like just that, you know, that moment and it looks so effortless and like, you know, like it just unfolds so naturally for you and Peter in that video. And I just was like, how did they do that? And like, it was always our mission, Tyler and I, to try to like emulate that. And it was like, we would do the best we could, but that's why he asked you that one day when you were here, he was like, you know that part of your <laughs> Secret is that there is no secret. <laughs> you know, it's different every time. First of all, if the tempo is a little bit faster or a little slower, you might have to go around more or less. You're not promenading at the same tempo. Uh, you get into it a little 
faster because of the music. I mean, you have to be really in that moment and allow the moment to make you do it. it it's never gonna be the same twice. And so when you rehearse, just respect the moment and live in the moment and adapt to the moment because then you have what I call an arsenal or a bag of tricks. You have experience of doing it in one way or another and not always trying to make it work, make it work, make it work. You know, life isn't like that. And I think sometimes the harder you try to make it perfect, the less it works, you know. The writer Robert Garris described that very promenade saying, Farrell and Martin support each other with interlocked elbows while he turns her on a ravishing tilt. It is ingenious and as solidly engineered as the Brooklyn Bridge, yet on stage, Farrell and Martin seem to be catching it on the wing. If you live in the moment, you have the capacity to adjust to what's happening in the moment. If you're going for the feeling to make it perfect each time, it won't happen because it just can't be. I mean, even a bridge sways a little bit in the wind. You know, it looks solid, but it moves. And one has to be that precisely or tiny little bit aware of that sway, that vulnerability. Also, I put myself in my partner's hands. You know, there can only be one conductor and that's the conductor of the orchestra. Even if you don't, it's too fast, too slow. There's one conductor you can't. In Mr. B's world, you don't tell the conductor how to conduct. So I leave it up to Peter. If it's going wrong, he has to fix it. You know, two people can't fix it because they might be in opposite ideas of how to fix it. And a little prayer doesn't hurt either. <laughs> That's, I mean, that's very true because you can't, I mean, you're, you're on one leg, you're bending out. There's really nothing you can do. You have to rely on your partner to, to just do it. And if it does go a little precarious and they have to fix it and, and it's trust and being in the moment. And I do remember another thing you said to me in, in diamonds, because I remember asking, I said, was that okay? And you said, well, you didn't commit. And that, and that has stuck with me because it's so true. Like just committing to the moment, committing to what your choices are it makes it easier for everything else and also to be in the moment. And I know I've been sharing that a lot with my, the students that I teach, because I feel like that was a very, it really left a, a big impression. So. Also, you have to bend, <laughs> you know, you're, you're tilted, but you know that when you go under, you're going to have to torque your body a little bit. You have to go under because you're, you're revolving. It's like a planet. It's, it's rotating and it's also revolving. You know, it has its orbit, but it's also in its own way. So you have to be like that and not be rigid because if you want to produce a turn, you have to be in turn mode. You can't be upright. It has to be tilted a little bit in order to get a vortex and, and turn. So uh, I usually say, the most important things that I learned from Mr. B are plie and bend. Those are almost the answers to everything. <laughs> There's at least one other step I'd love to hear you both talk a little bit about in that first pas de deux, which is that one where you're going off and your foot is kind of lapping the ground. So many people have, you know, 
written about that and been kind of mesmerized by that. Miss Farrell, what did it feel like when that step was being made in the exit of that first part of the... It, it's so beautiful and everyone uses that image of swimming or prancing. Um, none of that was said in the rehearsal. Mr. B's purpose was to get us off stage, you know, from upstage left to downstage right. And that covered the most ground. And it was a beautiful image, but I, I doubt that he, you know, had that in his mind and couldn't wait for a ballet to use it in. So often the story comes after the actual fact, you know, it's, it's very valid, but you don't wanna be bound by only one image either, you know? And there were never any certain set amounts of times that I would do that. It depended on, again, the tempo of the music. another feeling that doesn't exist in any other ballet. Every time he made a ballet, it was its own style. It wasn't a style of Balanchine or the, I don't even like to say neoclassic or black and white because it's much more than black and white leotard ballets. I mean, each one of those ballets is its own style. There's no way you could confuse episodes for Agon. You know, just no way. <laughs> They're just so totally a world unto its own. And Maria, how do you feel doing that exit? It's such an amazing way to exit the stage. It really is. I mean, and I was going to ask you if there was a certain amount of times that you were supposed to do that, but obviously your partner is bending and whenever he does, you have to kind of react to that. It's like feeling the energy of the partner as you're exiting. So you make that image last as long as possible. I love that Potter does so much. I am, you know, contemplating doing that in my final performance because I was supposed to do the ballet this season, but I don't think, I think the whole ballet is a little bit too intense for me. Um, so I was like, maybe I can just do that first Potter do because it's such an amazing feeling. I've always felt transported in that Potter do. I can't believe he made that so fast. It's so incredible to me that, you know, I guess when you have the two of you in a room, you can probably make anything really fast, but that's just like to come up with something like that and the beauty and the, you know, it's just exquisite. So thank you for being the muse for that. that he, knew, he knew the music very well. It wasn't as if he, you know, I mean, he knew it all his life. He was a musician. So he, he knew the phrasing. He frequently said he, wanted to educate, he educated an audience, he educated dancers. And if he felt that they didn't understand, then he hadn't been, he needed to work on educating that ballet, you know, redefining that ballet. So I think he felt that that sort of clarified what he wanted the whole ballet to be about. It's very different, but he, he knew the music very well and that's such beautiful music. It's meant for dance. <laughs> Uh, and it's rarely used, I think, in the opera. And maybe he felt, since he couldn't do it back then, he wanted to do it now. It's very special. That'll be a lovely ballet to go, to exit. <laughs>
enjoy every moment, be in the now because it's gonna go by so quickly. Someone said that to me because I was so nervous about retiring. And, and I, I can't remember who said it, but I'm so glad they did because they said, well, just enjoy, really enjoy every minute of it because it'll never happen again. <laughs> and it'll be wonderful. You'll, you'll feel really good. You know, I woke up the next day, I looked the same. <laughs> you know, yeah. and here I am. And I was thinking the, the really glorious thing about Chacon in this case and other ballets too, but I was in it, I danced it and I got to stage it. And when you teach everybody's part, you really, it's, it's a whole other education about Mr. B and what was going on in his mind. I mean, he had like a kaleidoscopic mind where every little piece of glass just, you know, when you look through, it just made all these beautiful patterns and everyone was compatible and happy. And I just learned so much from teaching the whole ballet. And everyone in a way does a little bit of everything that the ballerina does or the man does in some way. There, there's a, a thread going through the whole ballet. Maybe they don't have their hair down and they're, you know, it's, they're not swimming, but there's always a connection. Nothing is, even though they look so disjointed, the first pas de deux and the rest of the ballet, they look like two separate ballets. And yet they make the whole piece a totality. And when you teach everybody's part, you, you discover all these things and you say, oh, it's just so exciting and so much fun. And I don't think you always get that if you're only doing one part. And that must have been a lot of fun for Mr. B too, to be able to do all that. And I said to him once, it's in the back in the 60s, I said, you know, Mr. B, it's so wonderful. Your, your ballets are so beautiful. They're so wonderful to dance. It's just a shame you never got to dance them. <laughs> he never had that pleasure of knowing what it's like to be in a Balanchine ballet. How lucky we are, you know. <laughs> what did he say back when you said that to him? He just kind of thought, hmm. Love it. How would you describe the second half of the ballet in such high contrast to the first part of it? I really wasn't that familiar with the second half because I was always busy changing my costume. I wasn't as knowledgeable until I started to stage the ballet myself, you know, because those rehearsals would go on at a different time when I was rehearsing something else, the pas de trois, the pas de deux, the five little girls, you know, it's only the finale where we all came together. So there's kind of a disconnect, but it's all connected. But I didn't worry about it. <laughs> And then the contrast between the first Padada and then when you and in the first case, Peter Martins came back to dance, that whole grander Padada. I suppose I don't really analyze things that much. Once I decided to believe in Mr. B, I never questioned him and I never said, why did you do this? Why didn't we do this? You know, I just, I trusted him. I believed in him. You cannot semi-believe, you know. So I never asked him, it just, of course, it, it never was a puzzlement to me, you know, it was a, 
a new adventure. It was never a, a problem. The problem was like Maria said, putting your hair up, you know, those kinds of silly things that you have to worry about. You have to get out of one dream world and then get back in another. I mean, it's, it's so odd. <gasps> Did you have favorite or maybe kind of maybe even irksome? I don't know, but any any particular relationships to the different steps in those that in that second pas de deux where you have the solos in conversation with the male dancer? What struck me the most, I think, is that it was definitely choreographed on people who hadn't trained with him all the time. You know, there were those FSA things were attitudes were steps that they did a lot were normal in European training at that time. And in 63, you know, before, even before we moved to state theater and even before Mr. B decided how he wanted us to move. So they were unbalancing balancing in a way, you know, they were pre-balancing before he became, well, you can't really say that because he did serenade, he did all those things, you know, but I mean, he was ever evolving as well. He never thought of himself as a genius or a finished product. He said he had to work at making us look good sometimes. <laughs> he would go home at night sometimes, you know, and say, I think that's why he liked to iron clothes, sort of pressed out all the wrinkles of what had happened during the day. He was human. He would go home. And I'm sure he would wonder, hmm, how am I going to get them off stage? And then somehow he would come up with this idea, which is very different from other choreographers who if they can't get it, you stay in the studio and you try this, you have version A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And uh, Mr. B would just like with the beginning of Diamonds, he didn't know how we were gonna get in. So when he first choreographed it, we started from where the man is on his knee and you start with the developé, the whole entrance came after. So he never wasted time trying to come up with an idea. And it never occurred to Jacques or I that that wasn't how we wouldn't start the ballet. I don't know how we thought we would appear, <laughs> but it's, it's a beautiful entrance. It's a beautiful way of entering a world and creating a world of a ballet without having to come on in silence, take a pose and then start. It's very organic in a way, kind of very natural. The photographer, Paul Kulnick, who's worked at the company for so many years, I once heard him do a talk and he talked about like the double meaning when you look at the word entrance, because it's the same as entranced. And I just love that kind of idea. You see that so many times in the ballets Mr. B did for you, where it's like, it's magic. You don't just come on, you, you appear. Well, he also wanted to change ballet in the early part of the 1900s, it was difficult to get an audience if you didn't have scenery and costumes and a story and lots of things. So over time, he eliminated a lot of that. He didn't have all those things to use or to not use, but he had to move people around and he had to get them on and off stage without scenery or without stories and things. And he wanted to do that. So I think he, he became so skilled at doing that. Maria, do you have any particular moments or favorite parts of the ballet, particularly that second section in Dancing Chacon? I, I love that whole second section with the pas de deux and the solos. Um, it was a ballet that I learned quite quickly. Um, so I don't, I'm not a fan of learning ballets quickly. I like to have the time to kind of 
get very comfortable so I don't panic. <laughs> but I was happy that I was able to do it throughout my career and, and, you know, grow and evolve in it. I wish I could do it again because I'm sure there would be another layer that I could discover, especially after listening to this and working with you. Um, I think that that always brings a whole new element to the choreography. But I know, like you were saying, like, I'm not a good, I can't do it entrecise. It's I've never been able to, I've tried and there, and I can't even blame it on my height or my feet being big because there was a girl in my <laughs> class at the at SAB that could do them beautifully and she was taller than me and had bigger feet. So I always couldn't understand why I could not do them, but that's literally the first step, you know, in the, in the first solo. Once I would get past that, I would feel okay because I just always felt like, oh, I'm just kind of making this, I'm just going to beat my legs and hopefully it looks like something. <laughs> so that was always a little bit challenging for me. I loved being on stage with my partner and being able to watch him and share that moment. You know, you're usually off stage and then you run back on and it was so nice to just, it was like a very intimate moment, you know, and I, I loved that we were sharing that together and, and encouraging each other and just kind of having like a little chat out there you know it was very playful and fun and I started doing the ballet with Sebastian Markovici back in I don't remember what year it was but we were both new to the role so you could tell that we were both a little bit like you know the deer in the headlights just kind of like what are we doing out here and we we did grow and evolve over the years together and then when I finally started doing it with Tyler Angle it became something else because we had developed a nice relationship just in our partnering and and then just to be on stage and just being able to watch each other and, and enjoy that moment. If I could just do that, I mean, I would love that. The finale was very different. And I, it's funny you talk about the attitudes because there are so many attitudes in that. And it's, and I'm, I never even thought about it till you said that, but there are a lot. And it, I didn't realize that the choreography was because it was made on someone, you know, different people that it would have taken on a whole different meaning. So when he brought it to you, did, did he change anything? Or is, is it they, when they said it on you, it was just, that's what it was. I'm sure he changed something. That's what it was. That's interesting. Because you made it so you, you know, all the things that you did with it were so unique to you, which is, I guess, what we're supposed to do with these incredible ballets and make them, you know, bring our best self out. I just saw you in it so much that it, it's interesting that you, you know, made it your own. We were fortunate because we did it more often. You can only really improve in a ballet in performance, I think. You can rehearse, rehearse, but if, if you're going to rehearse to be perfect, you, I don't believe you can rehearse a performance. You rehearse options so that when the performance comes, you have several options for the moment that you are living in. If you want to do the same rehearsal every day and tell the pianist play a little faster, it'll be faster, I know it'll be faster or slower. You, you can't control that. You should just rehearse the way it happens, you know, that you're not thrown because it's not what you rehearsed or what you wanted to do or how you look best. Are there any particular insights you felt you gained as you danced the ballet through the years, Miss Farrell and Maria? Or, or things that it unlocked in you as you found your way in it more and more? Well, it never lost its fascination or pleasure. I mean, it was always, always, all balancing ballets are that gratifying. And there, there's always something new to discover. It's never the same. You are never the same. 
the endless variety of how you can feel or be, it's always comfortable. I would stand in the wings and say, oh, there must be an easier way to make a living. And then when I get out on stage, there would just be no other way I would want to live. I would be, you know, so nervous before I get out there. And the minute you get out there, the music takes over, the choreography takes over, the moment takes over. I will tell you one story that I have told. It's not in the book. It was after I came back to the company. George was still alive and in the first wing and Jacques and I were doing meditation. It was towards the end of Jacques' career. And I came on, the pas de deux was going along fine. It was wonderful. It was really, I was really aware of what was going on. And after it was over, our bows were such that he would come in from the downstage left wing and I would enter from where I entered and we'd meet in the center and bow. And we did, and the curtain went down and he said, Jacques said, my God, Suzanne, what was that? And I said, I don't know. And it was like everything in the moment, the orchestra, us, the energy, the audience, cosmos, you know, everything was in sync and you couldn't control it and you couldn't make it happen again. And that's never happened to me ever before in a performance. And I tell the story because you can't rehearse for that to happen. You know, you can't make it happen. It's, there's a lot of things going on, the air, the atmosphere, you know, but you certainly know that something out of this world is happening and it was just out of this world. But you can't make it happen, but you can enjoy it when it happened. It was wonderful that we realized it. We couldn't name it. We didn't know what it was. Who knows what it was? But it was amazing. That's incredible. And, you know, from what I gather, all the people that saw you perform live said that about every one of your performances, that it was out of this world and that they felt that feeling that you only say that you felt once. But that's, I mean, that's an incredible thing. And you're right, you can't rehearse it. And it's something that as, as I've gotten older, I've realized because you spend, you know, I spent, I can't speak for anyone else, but I spent a lot of time trying to, you know, better my technique and trying to be fast, not fast, but just improve the technique so I could do these ballets better. And then, then I was just like, why am I, I'm not just dancing, you know? And then I remember Sarah Leland always saying to me, you know, just go out there, just forget it. Don't think about, you know, pointing the foot and doing this and doing that. And I didn't really understand what she was saying for a long time because I was just so hard on myself about wanting to be better. And then when I finally felt like I let that go a little bit, then I started to enjoy myself. And I felt those moments of being in the moment and, and a little bit more just aware of every single thing that was going on. 
Now, I'm not saying I had this otherworldly experience like you by any means, but I do know that that's what I've been trying to achieve these last few years of my career because I know how precious this time is and how important it is to, you know, feel alive and feel in the moment and and just take it all in and I think after I had my son I was so grateful to even have that time on stage again that it became very different for me you know and it just like I heard the music differently I just felt like there was a whole different um energy and atmosphere and and a, and also I think a calmer you know in it was calmer inside and I do remember Peter saying to me in Chacon you know he's like because I always my the problem I always had was rushing. I would rush things because I didn't think that I could do it fast enough. So I would start a little bit ahead. And he's like, you're rushing, you're rushing. And I was just like, and I didn't even know I was rushing, but I would, you know, and I even like, that's one of the things, you know, I try to work on too, because obviously musicality is so huge in balancing ballets. And I'm just like, I can't believe I was rushing all this time and I didn't know it, you know? And, and now that like, I'm so much more aware of that. Um, it's, there, it is never ending. You're always learning. You're always growing. There's always so much to gain from everything. And like every time I did Chacon, it was a new experience, a new um, discovery. And I think that's what's so incredible about these balancing ballets and Mozartiana too. I mean, that's one of the ones that I have such a hard time never being able to do again. I feel like I found my way with it over the years. And I mean, I even I would find more if I had, if Suzanne, if you coached me, you know, it'd be so a whole other level to unlayer. Um, but it's like, it's amazing to know that these ballets are so much to uncover and they're so gratifying and so satisfying and just like so much more to explore every time you perform them. And it's amazing when you do have the opportunity to dance them many seasons. And it's not just one performance here, one performance there, um, because that's what makes it difficult. If you're doing two and then it doesn't go for two years and then you revisit it. And then, you know, it's it's nice to be able to kind of keep the, the continuity of it and, and grow as a dancer, but also learn more about the ballet so you can present it, you know, the way that it should be done. That's another great thing about Mr. B, I'm always saying. One of the great things about Mr. B, and then there's there's a million great things about him, but another one of them is that you realize that how wonderful it is to do his ballets. And you, you know, okay, so you did as many as you did, but you have that realization that it was very fulfilling and you loved it and you know, you grew in it. And you know, life is finite, <laughs> and a dancer's life is even more finite. And we should all be happy and grateful that we could live as full as we did and acknowledge that, you know. He was always saying more, <laughs> you know, at least we, we respect the word more. more. More is more. And with Mr. B, more is everything. What else are you dancing? on your farewell still to be determined um you know my body is not cooperating as well as i had hoped <laughs> so i am not sure i do think i'm going to end with slaughter on 10th avenue um i it's just something that i want to do it was supposed to go this season and because we're having no intermissions it's not going and i really would like to do that one more time and 
Uh, Maro Biganzetti is creating a ballet on me right now. We've worked together since the beginning of my career. So that what that ballet will probably go in the program. And then I'm just kind of deciding the what else my body can handle. <laughs> so, so you'll be dancing throughout the season. You're not just having one final performance and then disappear. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm kind of slowly taking ballets away that I was going to do. I was going to do Chacon. Um, and then that, I just felt like it was a little bit too much to prepare for. That finale goes on and on and on. <laughs> and as much as I love it, it's funny because I always used to say to Tyler, because it would be like, okay, here we go. Because it would be a long, you know, obviously it's quite a long finale. And I said, well, it's not 32 Fuentes. So I always like it would, I had to say that to myself, you know, because it was, even though, because that would, that would stress me out. At least this was beautiful dancing that I wasn't like freaking out about. It was just a lot of dancing. <laughs> well, it'll be wonderful to get out there again. It's hard to even grasp. I can't, like when I really think about it, I just well up. Um, but it's, I know my body is speaking to me, so I know it's the right time. It's just, it's hard. And I think losing this past year has been really difficult because um, I feel like maybe I could have been in a better place you know, to dance, but um, it is what it is. And I think everybody has had to sacrifice a lot over these last, during this difficult time. So um, I'm grateful that I'm gonna get out on stage. That's hopeful. <laughs> I'm still like, am I gonna make it? <laughs> we'll make it. Yeah. Beautiful. You'll have a great time. <clears throat> and, you know, you'll have a new life. Yeah. I enjoy teaching so much staging Mr. B's ballets, like I said, knowing the whole thing. He must have had so much fun putting together those ballets. It's like being in on his, on a joke, on the best joke when you stage his ballets, you really see where his mind was going and how clear it was. And, and he, I think that clarity gets into your normal, your other life. It'll be better in ways, you know, but how fortunate we were to have those ballets and to do them at all. And so many different wonderful ones, you know, great. So thank you, Mr. B. <laughs> I thought we might finish just with getting to ask the both of you about teaching. Cause I know for Ms. Farrell, that's been such a huge part of your calling these past years. And Maria, you're teaching now too. And is that, that that might be a nice way to to finish thinking about what it is that you're you're sharing now with your students. Do you teach at SAB, Maria? I have taught um, this past year at SAB um, and in other places. I taught a little bit at Juilliard as well. I think the pandemic kind of forced me into discovering myself as a teacher. I remember people saying, oh, you can always teach, but I didn't want to feel like I could always teach. I wanted to feel like I was good at it and that there was something that I was had to offer. And I, and I, I don't think I realized how much I've gained over these last 30 years in this career. It's, it's kind of incredible. And I can only hope that I'm passing on the information in a way that comes across as positive and, and, um, finding the spirit again of the art form. I feel like there's so much emphasis on technique. And I think also the way I emphasize my career in the beginning and how it's 
the level of technique has gone so high and, you know, everyone can do these crazy things and it's amazing. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, what is it really about? And bringing, bringing the spirit back to dancers and encouraging them to be themselves and to bring out like the analogies that you use, Suzanne, and the things that you, you say are so, it's so wonderful. And um, I'm like, I'm just sitting here going, I should be writing this down. I'm like, oh no, I can listen to it. And then I can write, I can listen to it again because I'm like, wow, this is like, you know, you have said so many incredible things. And I think that's, it's as rewarding teaching. I not as, I mean, nothing's going to compare to performing, I'm sure, but it's nice to see when, when students are hungry and they're, and they really want it, they're investing and you can feel, you know, it doesn't matter even what level they are as a dancer when they're really listening and, and applying and, and, um, it's very satisfying and I've, I have enjoyed it. And I, and I do feel like I've been able to find my way. I know I still have a long way to go, but it's been, it's been wonderful to kind of explore that a little bit more this past year and, and kind of, you know, use all these tools that I've gained and, and share them with students. So you asked me at the beginning of this interview, what it was like doing Chacon or being in on those ballets when they were being made. And Maria sort of alluded to it just now. You don't really know at the time so much. If you did, that wouldn't be very meaningful to, to, you know, in your life. But when you start to teach, then all these things spill out from you and you realize how much you did know and how much you did bring out of yourself when you were a dancer and, and performing. You know, you don't have time to think about all those things, but it's only when you voice it to someone else and pass it on that it really becomes knowledge. You know, it, it only becomes knowledge and interesting when you pass it on and you let it go and somebody else takes it and, and it changes their life. You know, you can't keep it inside. We don't know what we know until we tell it. You can love someone all your life, but if you never say I love you, they'll never know. So you have to, you have to say it and you, showing is one thing, but saying is a commitment and it's a, it's a really wonderful to teach. And, you know, sometimes you say something and there's just no reaction. You say, well, I thought that was a pretty powerful statement, but I guess it wasn't, you know, and it's like nothing happened. And then particularly with the young young people and then at the end of the course that I would teach they would write these notes and they say oh I like particularly what you said about this and that analogy and they came out with all these things they did retain a lot they just don't want to say it particularly when you're young or when you're busy doing it and preoccupied with technique and all kinds of other things you know there's that's another wonderful thing about being in Mr. B's ballet is they teach us on so many levels. We can talk about how to be without even dancing. We can talk about how Mr. B was and who he was and his philosophy by more than just his steps, you know, it was the whole atmosphere and the whole caring and the whole teaching. He asked me to teach Oh, in the early days, in the early 60s at SAB. And I thought, oh, he's losing interest. <laughs> he's not losing interest in me. He wants me to teach, you know. But now I, then I, I began to realize 
when you have to show it, when you show it to someone else and try to get it out of some other one's, some other person's body, it's much easier for you to do it yourself the first time around because you know how hard it is to work to get it from somebody else. So you've already reached another plateau and you've already advanced yourself as a performer or a dancer or whatever, you know, but it's not easy to teach. It's hard, it's very tiring. And if you've got a classroom of 20 people, you have to dance, you have to teach it 20 different ways because they all hear it differently. There's an audience of a thousand people out there. You have to dance a thousand different ways because they all see you differently and from a different vantage point. So that's a lot. <laughs> Thank you both so much for sharing your insights and your, and your passion for this art form and for Balanchine. And thank you so much. To learn more about Gluck, Balanchine, Suzanne Farrell, and Maria Karowski, please consult the reading list that can be found in the notes for this podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance.